with consulting way too often you know you're looking at three four five consultations for some infrastructure projects you know nothing is going to be said in the fifth consultation that wasn't said in the first consultation plus because everything is online cost of actually uh voicing your opinion is so much lower so people with not really that much skin in the game can you know try and derail things by posting their objections so all of these problems need to be fixed There is melting speculation this week that the government intends to abandon the Birmingham to Manchester link of HS2 over skyrocketing costs. The link, which is meant to reach from London to Manchester via Birmingham, uh, could now, by some estimates, cost well over £100 billion. This is, though, the latest in a long string of eye-wateringly expensive UK infrastructure. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IGA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, why is Britain's infrastructure so expensive? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Sam Dimitri, who's the Head of Policy at Britain Remade, who are a campaign group. Before joining Britain Remade, he worked at a range of Westminster think tanks, including the Smith Institute and the Entrepreneurs Network, covering topics including immigration, technology and education. He also writes an excellent substack called Notes on Growth. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this week's big story, which is about HS2. What's going on here? Why is HS2 so insanely expensive? So there are two stories here, right? So first of all, there is the cost overrun story. So when HS2 was first proposed, uh, the costing was put at something like uh, uh, about £56 billion to go from London, Birmingham, Manchester and Leeds all together. Uh, that, that's if you adjust it for inflation today. The, the problem is inflation has gone along up and, up and down a bit, has gone up quite a bit since then. So I'm going to try and, where possible, talk in 2023 prices. It was yeah, I, cost I think, about I think... what it's costing so... today. Uh just to do the London and Birmingham legs. So there's been a massive increase in costs that can't be explained just by inflation alone. But if you just look at the initial project, the initial distance that it was going to cover, it would have have cost about 165 million pounds per mile. Now that would still be more than than double the cost Italy paid to build a high-speed connection between uh, Naples and Bari about 3.7 times what it costs uh, France to build a uh, link between Tours and Bordeaux and uh, and significantly more too than what Japan built, built a bullet train line for. They, they can build one at a cost of about 50 million pounds per mile. So that suggests that it's not purely something that's happened in the last 10 years. There is a deeper problem and that's why, why what we've been doing as a as an organization is looking at the relative cost the absolute cost of infrastructure across the world people previously um, have focused on cost overruns the tendency for almost any major infrastructure project to quote a budget and then it turns out you know they're 40 percent 50 percent maybe maybe 200 percent over cost uh, what they initially quoted that's important to figure out you know why these cost overruns happen but we also need to think deeply about why we are in a situation where even if we stick to the budget, 
even if we came in under budget and over delivered, we would still be getting bad value for money. Well, I think this is the interesting point here. So a, a lot of people, I suppose, on the, the free market or, or centre-right side of this debate have been quite critical of HS2 on the basis that the cost benefit doesn't really add up. That's the spending a huge amount of money, even if it was 50 billion, wouldn't necessarily add up and so doesn't add up to 100 billion worth of value. I wonder what, whether you're, not, you're kind of, I suppose, sympathetic that we, we shouldn't really be trying to do these massive infrastructure projects if they're going to cost so much and, and, and the government should have uh, cancelled HS2 long ago and, and cancelling the second leg makes perfect sense now. Or is, is this just a matter of figuring out how to do these things more cheaply? Because I don't think people on the free market side would care that much about putting this trend line if it, let's say, it cost $10 billion and there were, you know, clearly the cost-benefit ratio then would be very different as opposed to $100 billion. Yeah, I, I suspect most of the opposition to projects like HS2 from a fiscal perspective, not from a, you know, my, my, my bit of farmland or my house is being demolished to make way for the design sort of perspective, but from a f- purely fiscal perspective, I doubt it would be an issue if we were building at French costs. We might be instead debating HS4 or 5 if we were building at French or Italian costs. And you do look around Europe, uh, countries that are similar size to us, seem to be able to build a lot more high-speed lines. Now, in, from my perspective, the priority should always be uh, that commuter rail. I think agglomeration within cities is ultimately the transport projects that deliver the most growth. Now, HS2 did have a case on that front in that it free up a bit of space on those commuter lines. But fundamentally, um, if we can bring costs down, some of these debates that we're currently having over whether HS2 is the right or the wrong project, the, the balance of, uh, you know, the balance of the decision would be completely different. Um, and I think it's really important to figure out how these costs increase quite dramatically. Um, maybe we could talk about how HS2 and the, the sort of power of uh, Nimbeast and how that has pushed up costs for HS2. Well, indeed, I, I think just on that first point, quickly, on, on the marginal pound spend, it does seem quite obvious to me that, that HS2 is not a particularly wise project, that there's a bit of a political tendency towards the, the kind of long-distance commuter, so long-distance rail over kind of quieter commuter rail projects that might be less expensive and less showy, but more economically beneficial. So improving commuter rail into London, for example, or into Manchester and Leeds, for that matter. Um, could probably have more of an effect. Let's look, let's let's unpack that though, because uh, we haven't really got into why why HS2 is so expensive. And we've, we've established it is insanely expensive. Um, I think that the first reason you've you've already flagged there is the, the impact of NIMBYism. Um, how, how does that push up the the, the cost of, of HS2? And and what, is there a broader story here about it pushing up the cost of all sorts of different infrastructure projects? So the other day I was reading the Times, and um, there was a a, a stat. Uh, about HS2 that blew my mind. So on a 45-minute journey uh, from London to Birmingham, that's fire old Oak Common, I believe, uh, only seven minutes you'd actually get sunlight. The rest of the journey would either be tunnelled, so we have about 25% of the route is tunnelled, and then the rest of it is in either a cutting or a noise wall. So, you know, it's not going to be, uh, you know, I quite like looking out the window on, when I go for a, when I'm on the train and seeing sort of nice countryside. But most of what you'd see on HS2 route would be uh, just a wall or a, maybe the, like trees basically to block you off uh, from, from wider view and to keep the noise impact down. Now that all adds costs. Um, 
So there's a there's a study in the US looking at the interstate highway system. This is um, by by two economists, Brooks and Lisko. Um, what they looked at was why costs increased in the US interstate highway system over the past, between 1960 and 1980, because uh, that seems to be where the costs really jumped up and then we sort of stayed at that high baseline and gone up quite a bit since then, but that's where the big jump happens. And what they found was that that coincided with a period where citizens gained a lot more power to object to infrastructure projects. Um, and what happens with those objections is there's, a, there's lots of different ways sort of nimbyism can affect costs. So, you know, you've got to prepare the environmental impact assessments and the planning application. 267 million pounds is what it costs the lower Thames crossing to prepare its planning application. I say that's what it costs. That's what it costs so far because it's still not done, done yet. Um, so that, that, that on its own is a significant cost. Uh, then you have the time lost. Uh, we know that inflation in construction seems to run high. Um, we know that when you have a delay, it makes it harder to maintain that consistent workforce. So you don't get that uh, long-term experience in the role. And it's much harder to train people. because They don't know when they're actually going to go into that job. So you either have to pay them more to, to incentivize them. So that pushes up costs. But the thing that they really found was that NIMBYism, the sort of ability of citizens to object, led to project design changes. So things like the additional tunneling for HS2, things like cuttings, uh, things like um, what, what, what you, you know, these noise walls. And um, they, they sort of found that, and this is, a, the, the, I think the exact term is tortiosity, but they, they use the much uh, more accessible term of wiggliness. Uh, and they found that there was an increase in the wiggliness of roads over time because basically engineers were engineering round a political problem fundamentally. Um, and they calculate that 0 0.01 mile per year in the increase in the wiggliness of a road is associated with about a 9.7 million pounds in cost, increase in cost per mile. Um, and you know, you see these alterations on HS2 adding costs. So that's definitely gonna be a factor. Yeah, is, is, I would say is, this isn't the only factor, purely because the fact is we we, we know that uh, the, the, shin, the bullet train line I mentioned that Japan built, that has more tunneling than HS2. So it's not just this, but almost certainly this does add uh, additional costs. The debate Parliament had to put HS2 through, um, amendments and sort of negotiations led to an additional amount of tunneling into the Chilterns probably were counting the cost of that parliamentary debate at about a billion to two billion pounds in increased costs. That's Yeah, really there, there, there's this kind of interesting historical story here as well, isn't it, that the reason why citizens' objections have been taken most more seriously in, in I suppose, the, the last 30, 40 years is, is because this war, there was this kind of post-war period, I suppose, particularly in the US, most famously around Robert Moses, Mo, Moses in New York, where he, he very much... Um, steamrolled through local opposition in, in, in quite a pernicious way in terms of he, he got rid of the slums, but he, he built huge tower blocks and massive highways mm -hmm. all, all the way through New York. Um, I don't think Robert Moses was unique. I think it happened in a lot of American cities and, and probably happened to at least to some extent, maybe not the same extent in the UK. Perhaps the most famous example here is, is the Houston Station 
which we know these days is an ugly monstrosity, but used to be quite quite a beautiful um, classical piece of architecture. Is is it that kind of enabler as a response to that kind of post-war trend towards demolition and top-down, uh, almost kind of progressive in in a post-war way to to build all build all these things out? And then the the response to that, the political economy response to that has been too far in the other direction, which is to give too much power to local objection. I think that's right. And, you, you know, we we in Britain didn't quite do the Robert Moses thing in London. We, we did it in some places, Birmingham in particular, just, you know, you go through the city centre of Birmingham, there's essentially a motorway in the middle. It's it's a really bad use of land. Um, but in, in, in London, there were proposals that would have destroyed many of London's most beloved neighbourhoods, you know, you'd have had motorways going through Camden, maybe it would cut down journey times, uh, but it would also destroy a heck of a lot of value. Uh, and it's very good that people were able to push back against this. But as you said, it seems like the pendulum swung way too far the other way. Now it's too easy to object to these projects. Uh, and you have these long drawn out planning processes you have uh, design changes that push up costs. And ultimately, a lot of the time you see these infrastructure projects, people object all the way. And then when it's finally built, they actually use it and they say, oh, well, actually, yeah, it's quite convenient or it wasn't as bad as we thought. Um, meanwhile, when they do make these design changes, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of uh, what's called green tunneling. So this isn't tunneling necessarily to... Um, uh, to get round the terrain of, of, of Britain, but this is to reduce the visual impact on land. So they're essentially, they're digging up a bit of land, uh, cutting it open, building some tracks underneath, then filling it up on the top. This isn't the sort of high-tech tunnel boring machine kind of stuff. And you know, the, what's on the top will be green uh, and you can walk over it and it will be nice. You know, perfectly pleasant, but that adds costs. It's not very green because you have to use a heck of a lot of concrete. Um, and ultimately, you know, will will the locals really see the benefit or are they really upset about the disruption to their lives in the short term rather than the actual uh, loss of a view or, you know, they might see a train every, you know, 15 minutes, not the end of the world in my view. Um, so, I, so I think that is a real, real issue. And, you know, we've got, to, we've got to definitely find ways of bringing communities along, but we clearly have, gone too far we're consulting way too often you know you're looking at three four five consultations for some infrastructure projects you know nothing is going to be said in the fifth consultation that wasn't said in the first consultation and plus because everything is online the cost of actually uh voicing your opinion is so much lower so people with not really that much skin in the game can you know try and derail things by posting their objections so all of these problems need to be fixed Derail be, derailing being, of course, the appropriate metaphor in, in this particular case. Although although I do note that um, your kind of excellent, um, the, the database you put together with 200 projects doesn't is not just about rail. It's also about tram lines and motorway bridges and road lanes and road tunnels and, and rail electrification, all of which the UK seems to be particularly expensive in, in putting together. Um, so, so we'll kind of address the NIMBY issue there. Um, another issue which I, I see you've kind of unpacked quite fascinatingly is I suppose more kind of interrelated, but... Um, is a slightly different one, which is kind of like a green red tape issue, the extent to which the, the environmental assessments, as well as, I suppose, interrelated, the environmental 
judicial objections become such a major cost in, in any kind of infrastructure project you want to put together. I was particularly struck by your example of the, the Jubilee Line extension, which, whose in, impact assessment for environmental purposes was something like 400 pages, as opposed to Sizemore C, where it was 44,000 pages, <laughs> uh, which, seems, which seems totally insane. And is still, of course, facing um, legal objections on environmental grounds. Yeah, and, and I think one of the problems here, so, so we've seen a massive increase in, in what's expected to be provided. And part of this is driven by what you'd say legal uncertainty. So business, businesses who want to build new infrastructure or the government in many cases, who, who, want to, who, are, who actually usually in a lot of cases, it's the government persuading another bit of the government uh, for permission to build. Um, now, that's fine. So separation of powers and rule of law and all of that works. That's not a problem. But you, you look at it and, you, and you, you start to see that it's not very clear that these people know actually what they might get picked up on. So they cover every single possible base because a legal challenge and the delays from that can really, really slow a project down. So you start to see 7,000 page environmental impact assessments grow to 10,000 pages to 13,000. And nuclear power stations are very big projects involve a lot of building uh, a lot of uh, impact not just on the, the actual site itself but in terms of traffic in the local economy um, and they're typically uh, because they're next to old nuclear power stations and old nuclear power stations have exclusion zones around them where there's not much building they tend to also be near sites of um, special scientific interest and out, outstanding natural beauty and the like so, so this is another thing that they have to contend with. But yeah, there's been a massive growth, you know, Hinkley Point C, uh, 30,000 pages, Sizewell C, 40, 44,000. So that's just a growth on very, very similar projects uh, in, in the space of, uh, you know, like five, seven, five, six, seven years. Um, so all of these things are, are an issue. And I, and I think there is a, an important point to be made here about what actually is green, because if you're building a nuclear power station, it's probably going to reduce the amount of gas you're burning for electricity. So you're going from a high carbon source uh, emitting source of energy to a lower carbon source emitting energy. Same with offshore wind, same with solar. Um, so these are actually having an impact on the environment. And it's the same is true with, with rail projects, right? Now we, we know for a fact if you're if you're going by uh, rail rather than rather than by car you're emitting much less, uh, and the worse rail links you have, the higher emissions are going to be. Um, so so again you know you might block this project uh, trying to help the environment, but there is an environmental cost there too. Um, in terms of roads, there, there's an interesting date too because I think too often. And you might have seen this with the nutrient neutrality debate. I don't know if you've been talking about that recently, but indeed, uh, yeah. <laughs> what you essentially people try to burden, pace all the environmental burdens of, of you know, what are real environmental problems, whether it's climate change, loss of biodiversity, uh, the you know the health of our rivers, uh, but place it purely on the the the, the most recent contributor and not on all the other contributors right so if you're a farm and you're you know dumping loads of uh, uh, slurry into into rivers and uh, your runoffs are causing really bad uh, environmental impacts uh, you're not actually really expected to change that much um, 
you know, the government's plan was to basically pay you money so that you would uh, not have those impacts. But if you're a developer, all of that burden is on rectifying your bur every every single bit of making the problem worse. You have to come up with a way of, you know, overcoming it. And in some cases, you're expected to do things that are quite expensive because maybe you don't have that uh, space on the site, or you know, you might, you know, the the, mar the, the easy stuff, you know. Which is which is probably going to be related to farming, better farming management isn't really available to you, or at least it wasn't mm. immediately. And that's the same with lots of things. And roads is a really good example. So we've seen a few road projects taken to court on climate change grounds. The argument is that if you build a road, more people will drive on it. Uh, when more people drive, that pushes emissions up. Is that consistent with our objective of reducing emissions? Now. The reality is the number of emissions that are coming from uh, as a result of increased traffic demand and from the construction process for new roads, very, very small fraction of transport emissions. The way you reduce emissions from transport is by switching to cleaner forms of transport, either by making rail more attractive or more likely, you know, moving from uh, internal combustion engine to EVs. And, you know, you've seen yeah. that, that's been in the news a lot, but that's a that's a change that's coming down the way and when you're looking at these new roads actually what we, we what we found was they have very small contributions in part because it's even under quite conservative assumptions the the number of evs on the road is going to increase a lot and that's going to massively reduce the uh carbon impact of driving yeah i mean it's it's interesting enough on the nutrient neutrality point there's already mandates on water companies to basically stop um putting the, the existing kind of toxins they're putting into rivers by 2030 anyway. So when, so the only period at which a new development could be making any contribution is between now and 2030. And even then, as you've said, a housing comparison compared to the cost of, um, uh, so the environmental cost of agriculture and the existing homes. I mean, it's kind of a similar story, I guess, with um, housing and new development to this idea of um, embodied carbon, that we, we shouldn't demolish buildings and build new ones because there's a negative environmental impact from those new ones and um, we just leave things in place. But of course, on net, if you're building more densely um, and, and you're reducing people's individual carbon footprints as, as well as in, uh, generally kind of, I, I suppose, improving the, the environmental rating of the housing people are living in, then on net, you would think the, the, there'd be a positive environmental yeah. impact overall. Um, I, I, there's some other issues as well that you've, you've been looking at. So, so you've got the kind of general NIMBY issue uh, that you've discussed, the, the kind of political barriers. You've, you've got the kind of environmental regulation, the way in which the, there's not kind of proper cost-benefit analysis here uh, when considering environmental costs. Um, you, you've also been thinking about things like project management and as well as, I suppose, the, the political kind of stop-start process, um, kind of more, I suppose, institutional or, or maybe practical or state capacity failures mm. that might be behind it. Yeah, so so let, maybe we should start in the sort of stop-start point. Um, that, that's a confusing uh, collection of words, and then start and stop-start. Um, essentially, uh, we use the example of rail electrification for this. So um, if you look over the past uh, four decades or so, Britain has some years built more than 500 kilometres, uh, uh, sorry, has has electrified 500 kilometers of road some years it's not done any there was a period for about 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 sort of 10 years and under labor where uh it looks like we 
probably were going to do something like hydrogen trains. And so there was a sort of pause on rail electrification. And it's been a really inconsistent process. Some years load, some years none. And it's gone up and down and up and down and up and down. Can contrast us with a lower cost electrifier in, in, in the case of Germany. For the past um, four decades, 200 kilometers, give or take 10 kilometers every year. Uh, and why does that matter? So it matters for a few first skills. So if you want to train to do something that's specialized like rail electrification, you need to know that there's a job for you to go into. If you don't have that uh, guaranteed job, you won't train uh, and companies won't invest in training people. Uh, so immediately you have a worse skills base. You have to pay people more, either bringing people from overseas who've worked on other rail projects or um, paying a lot more so that they can, uh, so it's worth their while actually having that training. Um, so that's a problem in the first place. You also lose out on the experience. So, you know, training is one thing, but the best training is on the job. Uh, it's those like bits of tacit knowledge that you pick up um, as you go, you know, electrifying railways in Britain poses lots of unique challenges. We have very, very old railways, older than what the constant will be dealing with. Uh, and that means that sometimes you're going through tunnels that were made that are a little bit too small. Uh, you're, you're sometimes going through, you know, things that are listed and, you know, special landmarks. And that all adds costs and that adds like real design challenges. If you've been working on British Rail for a while uh, and electrifying it, you'll probably come up with lots of specific solutions. You might find out that the best way of electrifying railways in Britain is to electrify 90% of what you're trying to electrify, then avoiding the really, really tricky bits or something like that. I think that's kind of what's currently happening in, 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 some, in some rail projects. But when you've not done in ages, you get situations like the Great Western uh, Railway uh, electrification project where we were meant to go from London to Swansea, but we stopped in Cardiff because of budget and we were already three times over budget um you know people don't know don't know what they're doing uh they don't know how to deal with these specific problems and costs grow now after that if, if people went on to the next job i'm sure they'd do things better because they'd have that experience they'd have those mistakes uh that they can learn from but the problem is if you don't have that mistakes get made again and again and again they don't get learned from so that's that's another reason why stop and start is a problem. Then there's a third reason, which I which I sort of talk about as industrial structure. Um, so you look at the UK's uh, largest construction company, uh, Balfour Beatty. Uh, internationally, it's quite a small company, uh, much smaller than its sort of Spanish or German counterparts. Um, and part of the issue is if you look at how contracts are done on major infrastructure projects in the UK. Instead of what you might see in the continent where one construction company has most of the stuff in-house, um, British construction tends to have a lot of subcontracting. Now, subcontracting immediately creates additional costs. Uh, it, it can be useful because you can manage risk that way. And that's, why it, that's why it's done, because, you know, the risk of, you know, all of a sudden you have hundreds of employees who are ready to, to build, but there are no projects for them to build. Uh, and you're going to have to lay people off or you're going to have to post a big loss. You know, that's why it's that's why it's so much reliance on subcontracting. But that is a less inefficient industrial structure. 
a better approach would be rather than if we were picking these projects so uh, and coming up with these like big programs that happen or don't happen we just said that right inflation adjusted we want to spend 200 300 million pounds per year on rail electrification every year for the next 25 years industry would know from that that there's going to be a lot of demand uh and then we would probably come up with ways of doing it cheaper because we wouldn't have these years where we do nothing in you know maybe some years we have projects that aren't as pressing as other projects but you know at the whole time we're never like losing that industrial capacity we're never losing that knowledge uh, and that stability so, would be really important so sam you've already just given one idea there but I, i'm kind of interested a lot of your analysis so far has very much focused on that the, the, the relative problems the uk faces although similarly in, in a lot of other um the other kind of english-speaking countries the us canada australia all have pretty similar um substantial infrastructure costs compared to, to continental countries um what what can we do about it what what, what are the solutions to the, the kind of problems you've identified in, in terms of particularly things like nimbyism and the environmental assessment process you've already given us kind of one response there in terms of how to build up kind of infrastructure and skills and, and build a, i suppose a domestic industry um, that has the capacity to deliver these things a bit better. But in terms of some of those other kind of naughty issues, what do you think the solutions are to, to enable uh, infrastructure costs to come down? So um, se se semi-related, we, we put out a report uh, earlier this year, the Power Book, which looked at how to fix the planning system for the, for the delivery of major energy projects so that Britain could be energy secure as soon as possible. Um, and a lot of those recommendations, which sort of come down to, um, you know, moving to a better system of environmental assessment, where they're essentially developers know the outcomes they're being tested against, and they know the kind of information they need to provide, so they can provide a 200-page document rather than a thousand-page document. Uh, creating uh, a much clearer bit of guidance on what is needed from consultation. At the moment, you know, there's been a gradual increase in the extent to which people are consulted on every project. And there's no real person saying, hang on a minute, this is about proportionality. Yes, it's valuable for people to have their say, but there's also a cost to another six months delay. There's a cost to, you know, everyone chipping in and, and adding to the cost of the design of a project. Um, so there needs to be balance there too. Um, you know, we, we've for some of these projects, it would be good if the government could do sort of strategic environmental assessments. So rather than looking at a project by project thing, there'd be a much wider bit of, you know, much more in-depth information for some of these major transport programs. So the individual project doesn't have to go through this process again and again and again. Uh, kind of like the, the zoning reforms that the government was talking about uh, uh, for housing that 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 got uh, ultimately ditched, but I think the idea of just creating a legal certainty and telling people, you know, this is where you can build. And then another important thing is what, what's called national policy statements. So these are documents that guide our planning system on major infrastructure projects. So before two thousand and eight, we actually had a worse planning system for infrastructure. Uh, it was very much involving lots and lots of different councils, uh, all of whom would have slightly different rules, uh, all of whom would respond at different paces. Uh, the, the Heath, the, the, I think it was the Gatwick uh, 
it might have been Heathrow Terminal 5, actually, I think. Um, you know, they, 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 they've the inquiry for that just cost like a really crazy amount of money. Not, now, that's now dwarfed by the lower tens crossing. But at the time, it stood out something that something isn't going right here. Uh, and so they reformed the system. And the idea was you have these national policy statements set down in Parliament. And that's meant to provide the clarity for major infrastructure projects and essentially give a democratic mandate for any infrastructure project that complies with a national policy statement. Problem is they've not been updated. So you have a situation where, you know, maybe your project, you think it complies with a national policy statement, but someone in the courts can quite plausibly argue and say, well, hang on a minute. Since that national policy statement was published, we've had six different energy strategies. We've decided that we're going to do net zero by 2050. We're going, which we hadn't before. We, we, you know, we've signed up to a new biodiversity charter, so on and so forth. Oh, and the government has cut funding for this and that. Is that really a reflection of Parliament's will? Is that a reflection of what government policy is? And as a result, the answer is no. And you have to come up with both managing all the different possibilities, what a judge could think or a planning inspector could think government policy on roads or railways or, you know, wind farms is. Um, and that creates so much uncertainty, so much additional cost. The best way to fix that is to publish, you know, they have to be written correctly. You know, you can publish a bad national policy statement that could just block development altogether. But if you publish up-to-date documents, that will immediately eliminate loads of uncertainty and cut the cost of the planning process. So on the planning side, I think that's really key. Now, in terms of the stop start, I think, you know, having much more certainty in terms of pots of money, um, I think moving to a system where there's more devolution so that, you know, generally local councils don't flip around in their decision-making in the, in the same, to the same extent as national governments. Uh, and they tend to have a much longer term view, partially because they tend to, be within one party's control for a lot longer time. Uh, so that probably would create some certainty, um, but but also giving, uh, looking at different ways of funding projects. So you know, part of the issue is that a lot of infrastructure projects are meant to happen tomorrow, but then all of a sudden you realize, oh, your annual transport budget that the government has set is, is gonna be breached. So they do what's called a cost saving exercise, but it doesn't save costs. It just moves the project to a future year and then moves whatever project would have been done in a future year to an even later year. And what happens? Well, first of all, you have delays, which creates uncertainty in that industrial structure issue. Um, you have to deal with all the inflation uh, and perhaps it change, and it means you don't get the benefits of that project. Now, if you can do more public-private partnerships, for instance, where you utilize private money uh, and you're not so reliant on the, the whims of the treasury and that's one way of doing it. France for instance builds a lot of roads with a large private sector contribution. They use tolls to fund them now. We've done toll finance roads here in Britain you know we, we did them historically uh, as well like most of the roads in Britain were toll financed way back when but um, this I think would be really important so when we have things like river crossings uh, bridges and bypasses, you know, actually looking at whether there's a way of bringing in private sector money and making sure that you're not completely, you know, it's not Jeremy Hunt's decision whether or not this project goes ahead this year or next year. 
it's actually a much more stable source of money. It might push up costs slightly because you have to pay for a return on capital for the private sector, but I'm sure that the added certainty would probably save money in the long run. Well, on that uh, very, I suppose, IEA note of uh, greater public-private partnerships to, I suppose, fund infrastructure as well as some, other, I suppose, very, very important thoughts about consistency as as well as um, improving our broader planning system, regulatory state. Thank you so much, Sam Zuchi, for joining the IEA podcast. That's Sam from Britain Remade, as well as Notes on Growth is his personal substack for those who want to stay up to date on these issues. If you I would join this podcast. Please do subscribe to the IA podcast on your chosen podcast provider, and you can learn more about the IA's work by visiting IA.org.uk.